Hey, good to see you guys. My name is Chris Barris. I'm the lead pastor here at Area 10, but I am not actually going to be doing the teaching today. So we have a special guest that I'm excited to share with you. Uh, Dr. John Weatherly is here from uh, out just outside of Knoxville, Tennessee at Johnson University. And uh, yeah, there's some graduates of that school that, that are here uh, also. Uh, but John Weatherly is a professor of New Testament and provost of the school there. Um, let me give you the academic stuff you're supposed to say before someone speaks of like, he got his MDiv at Trinity Seminary in Chicago and then went on and got a PhD at Aberdeen in Scotland. Um, and he got a PhD in, New, in the New Testament. So if you want someone who's like an expert in Bible stuff, this is, this is the guy. And so uh, John Weatherly uh, is, is, is teaching today. And I gave him the task of take us from the Last Supper, which we talked about last week, up into the cross, all the things that kind of go on in there with Jesus. So he's going to cover a lot of ground here for uh, in the teaching today. But I'm really excited he's here, not because of all those academic credentials and all that, like, uh, it's just that he was my favorite professor in undergrad, and so uh, I, I, I got a ton, I, I learned a ton in his classes, and uh, I wanted to bring to you guys the good stuff, because he's part of the good stuff, that uh, th just where I've learned to study the Bible uh, came, came from John Weatherly. Uh, in addition to that, he's a grandparent, he wanted me to make that known, so know that, that's, a, that's a, an important thing, and um, just really, it, after all the academic stuff, and I, I, he's just been a guy I've called on over the years, and I would say for the, for the better part of the last two decades, I've just learned a ton from him, and he's always been available to take my call and when I've got questions about scripture or life or whatever, and he's just a, a really great guy. So I'm, I'm excited you guys get to hear from him. He's going to be doing a seminar this afternoon. I'll tell you a little more about that at the very end of the service today, but please welcome Dr. John Weatherly. Hey, thanks. I, I appreciate that introduction. Um, some people wonder what a provost is. If you look this up in the dictionary, uh, one of the definitions is the head of a prison. Um, <laughs> but uh, it mean, means chief, chief academic officer. But, but I, I keep my hand in, in teaching. Um, and it is true. Uh, when my phone rings, it's Chris. Um, just, hey, I've just been thinking about this, I'm working through this, Can, you know. And I look forward to that because he'll say, hey, thanks for taking the time. I say, no, Chris, this beats honest work. This is just better than, than, than any other way. Um, it, it's nice to be, to hear somebody say, I, you know, uh, he was my favorite professor. There's, there's something uh, that we deal with in higher ed called FERPA, the Family Educational Right to Privacy Act. So I'm not allowed to tell you whether Chris was my favorite student or not. Um, but I will say that um, this, and this will amaze you, that as a student, he was relentlessly curious. Um, I, I'm sure that's very different than the way he presents himself now. Um, I, I have, be, being, studying the New Testament in, in academics is, is great stuff in, in my experience. I tell people, you know, my main job is to think about Jesus. Uh, which, is, which is pretty extraordinary. Um, and um, one of the things that, uh, that I have the opportunity to do is to explore the way that the stories in the Gospels of the New Testament, these narratives of Jesus that we have, the way they fit together. Um, something that we'll talk about this afternoon is that we have a tendency to read the Bible as if it's a series of tweets uh, when, when really the Bible is like a big movie um, franchise, you know, like Harry Potter, eight movies, 
uh, something like that. And you, you need to watch all of them to understand the arc of the story. So one of the things that I like to do is to talk about big chunks of the text um, and, and think about the way things come together in those. And that's what we're doing today. Thinking about the way this, this chunk of text comes together, I, I'm, I'm just curious. How many of you feel really satisfied with our country's political leadership right now? Yeah, I, I heard that. Ha! Okay. Yeah, that's where we are. Some of us are thinking, oh, you know, I, actually, I think the president doesn't get a fair shake. And others of you are thinking, yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm very dissatisfied with the president, but I'm intrigued by what Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats are doing. But if we say leadership as a whole, you know, we're going to say, not so much. By the way, how's political leadership going? Virginia. Those of us in Tennessee have been watching. Oh, sorry, it's painful. You'll get through this, okay? You'll get, you'll get through this. Um, how about uh, business leadership? What do you think of the state of business leadership in our country, in our world? And you might think, well, you know, I like my boss pretty well, but, you know, I'm not sure all the corporate bigwigs and so forth. Some of you are thinking, oh, the guy who runs my business is terrible. Wait a minute, I own my own business. <laughs> or my field, educational leadership. Uh, you know, I... I, I attend workshops and, and read articles and books about trying to bring improvement to higher education. I'm aware of the kinds of things that are going on all the time in, 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 in P12 education, uh, preparing people for higher education, all the things that we do. And, and it just seems like sometimes we're just working harder and harder and getting less out of that. Leadership is a problem for us. Then I ask myself, let's say we had the leaders that we needed. Would we follow them? If, we, if, if my boss was the person he really needs to be, that she needs to be, uh, if, if the president was the person the president needs to be, or, or uh, if, if, if a congressperson was the person that, that we need in Congress, would we listen? Would we follow? The problem of leadership is really kind of, no more than kind of, it is the problem of humanity. And, and it is to that, that 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 we're giving our attention today. Now, uh, sometimes we have people who, who turn to the Bible and say, you know, I, we want to we want to talk about leadership from a biblical perspective. So we're going to extract five leadership principles that Jesus taught us. Jesus didn't come to lead a, a leadership seminar that takes place in a hotel ballroom, uh, you know, over over a Thursday morning and afternoon where you get a box lunch and a notebook and see a lot of power slides and then have the opportunity to spend some money on, on books and videos that follow up with that. Um, Jesus came to restore humanity to what God intended, it, intended our humanity to be. But in so doing, Jesus shows us what it means to be the right kind of leader. We call Jesus, uh, Jesus is called in the, in the Gospels, the Messiah or the Christ. This is a term which means the anointed one. And that's a, that's a term of leadership. It means God's true king. Jesus comes and presents himself as God's true king. Though interestingly, he seldom uses that term for himself. When others use it of him, he affirms it. He sometimes redirects it into exactly the kind of king that he is. And the text that we're going to be looking at is a part of that redirection as the events unfold. 
But he calls him, he, he is referred to rightly as God's true king. Yet he calls himself commonly a phrase which was very unusual, what people didn't use to refer to themselves. He calls himself the son of man. And for a number of reasons that we can't elaborate right now, but one of them at the core is he is showing us what a true human being ought to be like, how a true human being thinks and acts and relates, what a true human life uh, is, is, is going to be. So how does the true king rule? How does the true human being live? We're going to be looking at, at, at Luke chapters 22 and 23, a lot of text. So, so let's introduce part of that and thinking about how this first part, we're going to focus on the true king ruling, the true human living in humble submission to God the Father. Uh, Luke chapter 22, beginning with verse 39. And he came out and went, and as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus rules, Jesus lives in humble submission to God the Father. You know, if you, if you follow the story of Jesus in any of the Gospels, we're immediately impressed with the overwhelming power that Jesus demonstrated. And it's power that those around him recognized was, was extraordinary. Now, here we're, we're in the realm that, that we as modern people call the miraculous. And, and modern people are very skeptical, and understandably so, about the possibility of miracles. But let's, let's understand that if, if the universe was created by a, a, a God who is then ruler over that universe, sovereign over it, it's perfectly reasonable to expect that it might be a part of that God's purpose that in the ordinary course of cause and effect that he has created, he might sometimes inject new causes into that pattern that alters the direction in which particular events are going. That's, that's a, a reasonable thought, and it's one that, that, that can be developed at length. We don't, have, we don't have the opportunity to do it now. And the Bible is actually, in, in the Bible, miracles are surprisingly few 
They appear only in certain periods of biblical history. But Jesus, among all biblical miracle workers, is unique, even among those few, for this reason. Other miracle workers, uh, like the prophets of the Old Testament, or even in the New Testament, the followers of Jesus after his resurrection, they appeal to a power outside themselves to do the miracle. That is, they appeal to the power of Almighty God. The prophet Elijah in the Old Testament uh, is living with a widow who has a son, and, and the widow's son dies. And Elijah spends the afternoon in deep, agonizing prayer for that boy, and then God restores his life. The power comes from outside the prophet. Jesus, on the other hand, does mighty acts of divine power on his own authority. He's teaching. He's in a crowded little house. These, these houses in, in ancient Palestine weren't very big. And, and no one can get into the house, but there are some men who have a friend who is paralyzed. They want Jesus to heal him. They can't get through the crowd. So they go up on the roof, and they dig a hole in it, and they lower the man down through the roof. It's obvious what they want, and yet Jesus sees this man coming right down on top of him. And he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. Not what they were looking for in the moment. Now, the people who are listening, they begin thinking, and the religious leaders start to grumble, and they say, who does this guy think he is? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus, text says, he knows what they're thinking, and so he says to them, ah, which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or say, rise and take up your bed and walk? So you may know that I, the Son of Man, have authority to forgive sins. He turns to the man and says, arise, take up your bed and walk. And he does. He does. And Jesus doesn't appeal to power outside himself. He's claiming the power of God. He's in a boat with his, with his disciples. He's asleep. They're on this, on, on, on this lake that we call the Sea of Galilee. And a sudden storm comes up as it does in that part of the world. And, and his, his disciples are terrified. And they say, Lord, don't you care that we're going to perish? He wakes up and he simply says, peace, be still to the storm. And the storm is, is, is stilled. And they ask, what kind of man is this that the winds and the waves obey him? The answer is clear. The answer is clear. Only God can do this. Jesus comes to a little town called Nain, and, and there's a funeral, a widow who uh, has a son who has died. It's like that story of Elijah in the Old Testament. Yet Jesus simply goes over and touches the, the, the coffin in which the, the, the young boy is lying, and he rises from the dead. He acts on his own authority. Jesus has the authority, the power of Almighty God. When we ask ourselves, why do con Christians confess this, this crazy notion of God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit? It's tied to this reality that Jesus acted with the authority of God alone, yet... And the Gospel of Luke shows us this repeatedly, yet Jesus lived in a constant posture, attitude, and habit of prayer to God the Father. After Jesus had spent a long day teaching and healing, his disciples got up the next morning and, and looking for him, they found that he had uh, awakened early and gone off by himself to pray. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, we see Jesus praying and teaching his disciples to pray as an act which expresses dependency on God, reliance on God, submission to God. Now, here's, here's the paradox that this gives us. Jesus has 
the power, the authority of God himself. Yet, he never uses it for his own advantage. Never once does he do something for himself, make something for himself by this divine power. Instead, he lives and directs his life in submission to God the Father. You and I want to run the show, don't we? I tell my students all the time, listen, I've been a student, I've been a professor, professor is better. Okay. You know, they say, when's the paper due? It's due on Friday. When will you have, when will you have them graded? I'm neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. <laughs> you know, I don't like that. Why don't you complain to the provost? <laughs> it's awesome. I have a great life. Okay, power. It's wonderful. Wonderful. A little tiny power, but still. That's what we want, isn't it? We want to run the show. Mostly, I just want to decide what my life is going to be all about. I want to pick what I do, where I live, you know, what my family's going to be life. I want to pick how my life is going to end. Jesus is showing us the life we were made for is not the life in which we are in charge. He is in charge, yet he submits to God the Father. He lives in, in that posture of submission. And so on this occasion, he prays, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Through the, through the entirety of the gospel story, we see the cross looming at the end. We see hints of it. At the moment that Peter, one of Jesus' followers, says, you are really God's true king. You are the Christ. Jesus begins telling his followers, this is how I am God's true king. I'm going to Jerusalem. I will be arrested by the high priest council. I will be handed over to the Romans. They will crucify me. The act that they use to show their absolute power in their empire. But then God will raise me from the dead. And Jesus' disciples aren't even able to conceive of this because they're thinking, if you're God's true king, you will not rule by dying. Yet this is exactly what Jesus says is, is the will, the purpose that, that God has given. And so on this occasion, as Judas comes to Jesus, he's acting out the very thing that Jesus said was, was, was going to happen. As, as the disciples confront this, they behave in the, in the very way that Jesus said this would happen. As one of them takes steps to try to defend Jesus, Jesus says, put the sword away. No more of that. He's going willingly to his death. And as he sees this, this crowd, these, these, these temple soldiers uh, who have come to arrest him, he says, why are you coming at me with swords and clubs like I'm some kind of robber or rebel? I've been in the temple every day. You could have arrested me there. You see, these, these guys and, and the people they work for, they were afraid that if they arrested Jesus in the daytime when he was around the crowds, that Jesus would get his followers to, to provoke a riot in an attempt to maintain his freedom. But Jesus says, no, I, I am ready. I am surrendering myself. In this story, no one takes Jesus' life. He willingly gives it. As, as we go on, we, we see something else about this true leader, this, this true human. The true leader, the true human, lives in faithful declaration before the powers of the world. Let's, let's read again, beginning in Luke uh, twenty-two fifty-four. 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. 
And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are, are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an, of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, if you're the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man mis." misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you've said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout Judea from Galilee even to this place. Well, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. As we read through this, we realize that that Luke, like the other gospel writers, has shown us a strong contrast between Peter and Jesus. Jesus has been arrested, and Peter is trying to, to follow quietly and secretly behind to see what's going on. Peter reckons that he's in danger himself, as all of the followers of Jesus are, when he's arrested. But then when Peter is confronted by as insignificant in their time a person as a servant girl, he lies. He says that he doesn't know who Jesus is. And he repeats that in exactly the way that Jesus had warned him. Because Jesus had said to his followers just hours before, one of you will betray me, all of you will fall away. Peter said, not me, I'll remain faithful to the end. And Jesus said, you'll deny me three times. But as he tells the disciples this, he also tells them, but when I rise, you'll be reunited with me. Those failures aren't going to matter. What's going to matter is not your failure, but my faithfulness. So as Peter is denying that he even knows Jesus, Jesus is standing before authority figure after authority figure after authority figure. First, he stands before the high priest and the high priest council. And they say, well, who are you? Are you God's true king? 
And Jesus takes a step well beyond what they've said. He says, I'm not just God's true king. You'll see me seated at the right hand of God. He's saying, not just the king whom God has sent, I am the king who is equal to God. I sit on the same throne that God sits on. And on that basis, they say, well, we don't need to hear anything else. This man is a blasphemer. They send Jesus to Pilate, who is the Roman governor of of Judea. They need to do that because the Romans do not permit the Jewish council to put people to death. Sometimes they act outside of the authority that Rome gives them. But on this occasion, they're minding their P's and Q's because this is an important occasion. And so they say a little bit of a different kind of a thing. They say, he claims to be a king, which was to get the attention of Pilate. Now, sometimes when we read about Pilate, we think, oh, he's, he's, a, he's a noble Roman. He's not, he's not prejudiced against Jesus the way the council was. Uh, he, he sees Jesus for who he is. The historical sources that we have outside the New Testament that tell us about Herod suggest a different kind of a portrait. Not that he is a noble seeker of justice, but he's a very cynical, conniving politician who likes nothing better than to be on the opposite side of the leaders of the people that he governs. He was constantly at odds with, with the, uh, the high priest council there in Jerusalem. So he knows they want Jesus dead. He says he's innocent. He says he's innocent three times, just as Peter had denied Jesus three times. Jesus is innocent. Even cynical Pilate declares it, yet Jesus does nothing to defend himself. He declares who he is openly when he speaks at all, doing nothing to defend himself. He is unashamed, unafraid, knowing not just the risk, but the certainty of death that lies before him. He does this in the face of ridicule and torture. There's an irony in this scene when Jesus is being beaten by the soldiers who blindfolded him, and they strike him, and they say, hey, you're supposed to be a prophet. Tell us who hit you. Jesus was a prophet. Since Luke chapter 9, he's been describing how these events will unfold. And he has gone to them with this open, willing declaration. Let's now think about the next section of the text and, and think about how the true leader, the true human, lives in undeserved suffering in place of the guilty. Beginning in, in Luke twenty-three thirteen, Pilate then called together, the chief priests and the rulers of the people, and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of the charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who has been thrown into prison for insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I found him in, in him no guilt-deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. One of the questions that runs through this this story of Jesus at at this stage is the question, who's the real rebel? 
who's the real insurrectionist? Jesus had been in the temple days before, and he said, it is written by the prophets, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of robbers or insurrectionists, that word can be translated. When, when the, the high priest and his crew asked by what authority Jesus asked, he acts, he tells them a story about a man who owned a vineyard and, and rented it out to tenants. And when the tenants wouldn't pay the rent, the man said, I'll send my son to collect the rent because they'll respect my son. And instead, they kill the son. And so Jesus says, what will happen to those who have rented the vineyard. And, and people say, oh, the, uh, the owner of the vineyard will cast them out and put other people in. And the high priests knew that Jesus was talking about them. And Jesus is subtly pointing a finger at them saying, you are the true insurrectionists. Now, Jesus has been charged with rebellion. And it's a true rebel who is released. Jesus is about to be murdered and it is a murderer who is released. Why do the gospel writers all give us this detail? You and I are like Barabbas. That's why. Jesus' death is, is, is a, a beautifully complex thing in the Bible. Jesus dies as, as the climax of all of the faithful people of God who have suffered because of their faithfulness. He is the epitome of the righteous sufferer. He suffers with the people of God. By his suffering and death, which is inflicted on him by an imperial authority that routinely tortures people to death in public as a way of expressing their power, he overturns that kind of power with God's kind of power, the kind of power which we see in his willing submission to God the Father in his pouring out of his life in this way. But his pouring out of his life is a pouring out of life for the sake of people like you and me who are rebels, even murderers, who don't deserve it. As he said to his followers, as you considered last week, as we come together every week, this is my body broken for you, like an animal offered in sacrifice in the temple that is cut into pieces before it's put in the altar. This is my blood that is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins, like the blood of that animal which was caught in a basin and then poured out in a visible ceremony as the animal was laid on the altar and burned in sacrifice. Jesus, the innocent one, dies for the guilty. This is the true leader. This is the true human. So let's sum this up. As the image bearer of the true God, what does Jesus show us? A few things. He shows us how to lead. In those portions of our life where we are given responsibility for others, we lead not in position, in prestige, in status, expertise. Those things are nice. But if we lead like Jesus, we lead in weakness, in submission, in service, in self-giving. Jesus did not use his power to serve himself, only to serve others. Jesus shows us the kind of humans we were made to be. 
The archetypal story of humanity in the Bible is the story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve who are put in a good place, told by God, you will have life, you who are made of dust and are frail. You will have life if you listen to me, if you follow me, if you submit to me, if you depend upon me. But instead of depending on God, they grasp for the power of God, hoping to become like God and run the show themselves. They didn't have the power of God, but they wanted it to use for themselves. Jesus has God's power, yet never used that power for himself. Instead, he gave his life for the sake of those who deserve death. In doing these things, Jesus provides us the most compelling image of truth and love and justice and beauty that the world has encountered. One of the things that I get to do which blows my mind um, at Johnson University is, 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 is teach students from the People's Republic of China. We have a partnership arrangement. The story is interesting. I don't have time for it here. I don't have time for what I've done already um, uh, about how this came to be. But we have a dozen or so Chinese students who come to us every year. They're school teachers. They're, they're doing degrees in educational technology, masters of educational technology. We have them take a couple of classes that we call Early Hebrew History and Eastern Mediterranean Literature. Um, the Early Hebrew History is the Old Testament. The Eastern Mediterranean Literature is the New Testament. Only about 20% of these students are, are openly Christian. Some of them are interested in Christianity. Many of them have never heard about it. I've, got, I've had the opportunity to teach that New Testament class a few times. They read the Gospel of Luke, and then they read the Book of Acts. And each day they write an essay. This is from an essay that one of the students wrote uh, after coming to the end of the Gospel of Luke. When I arrived in Knoxville one month ago, I saw many architectures which belonged to different churches on the way from the airport to Johnson University. You know, church is an unfamiliar word for me because I haven't seen any churches in China. I'm a communist who is not allowed to have any of their beliefs except communism, so that I have no chance to go to church for a visit. I haven't read the Bible before I came to America, but I know there is a very famous story named The Last Supper about Jesus' death in the Bible. Because of it, 13 is regarded as an unlucky number for Christians. I didn't know that. That was a weird no. By the way, there is an oil painting about the Last Supper on the wall of the second floor in the Templar School of Education. That's a place on our campus. When I went to a church in Knoxville on the first Sunday morning after I came here, I felt a little amazed about it. The church was just like a big and warm family than a place to accept preaching for Christians. They greeted others, gave hugs to others, prayed to Jesus by singing songs, prayed for people who were suffering diseases and disaster together, though they were strangers before. I even saw some Christians holding out their arms and weeping when they were excited. They were so faithful when they did praying that I couldn't believe how great the power of belief was if I hadn't seen it myself. I was given a small piece of bread and a little cup of red wine, which represented Jesus' body and blood to eat. A Christian told me it was a memory for Jesus' dedication to sinful human mean, beings, although I didn't know why until I read this part of Luke today. Jesus healed so many people who were sick and troubled by evil spirits before he went to Jerusalem, but he didn't do anything for himself, although he had anticipated his death three times before. He just kept calm in the face of death, comforted women who wept for his death before long, and forgave one of the condemned evil ones. What a graceful man. And now I know why Christians are so faithful to him. Because a man who can devote himself to ease other sins should be honored and praised forever. We're at the end of, near the end of the season of Lent, and maybe you have observed Lent by giving something up. Um, 
I hope that was uh, a, a worthwhile experience if you did. I hope that you were challenged to, to depend on God if that was the case. Lent should teach us something. This story should teach us something that we give up not just for a season. We need to give up trying to do life by any means other than the means that Jesus has shown us. Not seeking to use power for ourselves, but serving others at the cost of our own lives, all in willing submission to the God who made us and the Christ who redeemed us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your overwhelming love for us, your submission to God the Father in the face of death, are too high, too wide, too deep for us to grasp. But they provoke us towards gratitude and praise forever. Strengthen us to express that in the way that we love and serve those around us. Amen. We are going to.